Let us go ahead and move on into our teaching for today. We are continuing in our series on the life of David, and today we are in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So if you have your Bible with you and you want to follow along there, I'll give you a moment to turn and find 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you don't have your Bible or you can't find it, that's okay, because we'll have the text up here on the screens next to me, so you'll be able to follow along. Like I said, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 6 today. I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and we're going to read about half the chapter. Okay. As I said before, today we're in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 1. David again assembled all the fit young men in Israel, 30,000. He and all his troops set out to bring the ark of God from Baal, Judah. The ark bears the name, the name of the Lord of armies who is enthroned between the cherubim. They set the ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart and brought it with the ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill. Ahio walked in front of the ark. David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of fir wood, instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah. And God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence. And he died there next to the ark of God. David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. So he named that place outburst against Uzzah as it is today. David feared the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So he was not willing to bring the ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he diverted it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. The ark of the Lord remained in his house three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. It was reported to King David, The Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's family and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and had the ark of God brought up from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. When those carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. David was dancing with all his might before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod. He and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of the ram's horn. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Saul's daughter, Michael, looked down from the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent David had pitched for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence. When David had finished the offering, offering the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of armies. Then he distributed a loaf of bread, a date cake, and a raisin cake to each one in the entire Israelite community, both men and women. Then all the people went home. I want you to imagine, imagine a, a dystopian America where uh, this, the government has been overthrown. There's now a dictatorship 
in place, and, uh, and, and all of the population is incredibly oppressed. And just like in you know, all those great dystopian movies, there's a resistance that rises up. Uh, who, who g- generations later, who determine that they are going to overthrow the wicked, corrupt, oppressive government, that they are going to remove the dictator and, and reinstall the republic. And so they rise up this resistance, this revolution, they throw off the oppressive government, they remove the dictator, and they install once again a, a republican form of government. And what the dictator had done in order to you know, consolidate and really secure his power is he had taken some of the, the foundational documents that have founded America, like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and he had hid them away so that no one could access them or, and use them to challenge his authority. But whenever the resistors had overthrown the government and, 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 and taken him out and it sought to uh, reinstitute a, a uh, government that would bring freedom to all, they recovered these documents and they brought them back into the capital. And there was, there was parades and there were celebrations as the people rejoiced. If you imagine this scenario, you can, you can kind of identify with, with those resistors, right, who overthrew the dictatorship and brought back in those, uh, those, those founding documents, but these documents which are more than just sheets of paper, but these documents which in a sense symbolize and capture the spirit of American liberty, right, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States. And so whenever they bring in what are really these like American relics back into the Capitol. It's, it's not just bringing pieces of paper in, but it's a symbol of, the, uh, of bringing back the spirit of the nation that they loved and that they had fought for. It's similar, that kind of an experience is similar to what is happening here in Israel, except what's happening here in Israel, while it's similar because they're rejoicing in, uh, in a, in a g- uh, good movement in their nation, it is also far, far more than that. Because they're not just bringing in something that is a symbol or a, a relic, something that, that had old value, and, and that's really all it is, is old value that we still appreciate. But instead, what they're bringing in is something that is truly a sacrament of God's presence among the people. The Ark of the Covenant was seen as, uh, you know, the, the Old Testament Israelites, they believed that God was omnipresent, that he was everywhere, but that they had, they had this idea that his special presence, his relational presence especially, his, his uh, revealing presence was located specifically in the tabernacle and with the Ark of the Covenant that held the documents, the, the tablets, the stones of the covenant and had the cherubim on it. It was seen as God's throne on earth, to put it in another way. And so as they bring with parades and celebrations, as they bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, the the capital, the city of David, they're rejoicing because of what it meant for the nation. I mean, what it meant that God's presence was back with his people in the center of their life. Now, as Christians, we no longer have an ark. We no longer have this ark. We no longer have this, this uh, sacrament of God's presence because instead, as Christians, what we read in the New Testament is that we have been given something far better than an ark as God's presence. We have been given Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment that the ark and that the temple was pointing forward to. 
They saw God's special relational presence tied to these objects or these places, but God's presence came fully down in a way that no ark or no temple ever could fully capture. God's presence came down in Jesus Christ. As it says in Colossians, the fullness of the Godhead dwells within Jesus Christ. So we no longer have an ark because we have Jesus. And we no longer have a special place that we need to go to to enjoy God's presence as they desired because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So here's the thing. Whenever we read this story and we read some confusing parts, maybe the part of Uzzah, and we read some parts with celebration, it might seem really far removed from us. But the lessons of what it means whenever God's presence comes into the midst of his people, well, because of what Christ has done and the Holy Spirit dwelling within our hearts, the lessons are very much relevant and very much applicable to our lives today. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to consider what it means whenever God's presence is among his people. And we're going to see it through, uh, considering it through uh, the lens of Jesus, but with these lessons that we read about in uh, this story of David bringing the ark back into the center of the life of Israel. So we're going to look at three things. Um, we're going to look at the Lord's rulership. The Lord's rulership. We're going to look at the Lord's revelation. And then finally, the Lord's reconciliation. These are three lessons that I want us to see in God's presence being among his people. So let's begin with the Lord's rulership. Like I said before, the ark was very, very closely identified with God's presence. I know it's a little bit, it's quite a different mindset that we have to get ourselves into to understand the way that they were thinking, and so therefore the reason that they were responding the way that, we were, that they were. Because we, we're far removed from them, and especially if, you are, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've always been taught that, that because of Jesus' work and that because of the Holy Spirit being given to us, that God's presence dwells with you. And so, you know, and if you grew up in any Protestant tradition, you were taught that you don't need, uh, you don't need priests, you don't need sacra sacraments, you don't need any of these extra uh, ceremonial structures put in place to enter into God's presence and to receive his grace. So for us, it, it, may be, it might be a little bit difficult to try to put on this hat or these glasses, this way to see the world that they saw it. But for them, they didn't have those blessings like we had, that those understandings. Instead, for them, the way to get uh, into God's covenantal presence, the way to go before the throne, it was not just directly to the throne because of the gift of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. For them, it was through the sacrificial system, through the high priests, and specifically at the Ark of the Covenant, or once they built the temple, in the Holy of Holies. So the Ark of the Covenant, this place was closely identified with, if you want to go into God's presence or get anywhere near God's presence, this is how it's done. So by bringing the Ark into Jerusalem. You see, the ark was still, it was in Israel, but it had been put into this backwater town, right? This place, uh, Baal Judah. Had any of y'all ever heard of Baal Judah before? No, right? Now, even if you're not Old Testament scholars, right? Like, you know, you've heard of uh, Jerusalem, and you've heard of maybe Hebron, and some of these other cities, but Baal Judah, where is that, right? It's a, it's a nowhere place, all right? It's a nowhere place, but it is where Saul had sent the ark off to. 
is where he had sent the ark off to, the symbol of God's presence among his people. Let it just go stay there, right? Let it go stay there where no one goes, where no one thinks about, and that doesn't really matter to the to the, the cultural, social, and political life of our nation. Let it go somewhere else insignificant. That's where it had been. So David takes it from that place, and he brings it to Jerusalem, which is the new capital, uh, uh, the new center of Israel's life, that city, and he brings that ark into the center there. What he was doing is that he was signaling that, uh, uh, in contrast to the past, the presence of God would be at the center of the nation's life. That's what this chapter is all about. That's what's behind the celebration. That is what is David's heart in going to get the ark and bring it to Jerusalem. He was signaling something. He was making a, a, uh, a, a drastic change and mo- moment of leadership in the life of the nation of Israel. By, saying, by bringing the ark into the center and saying God's presence and all of that entails is going to be at the center of our nation's life. It will determine our identity. It will determine uh, our values. It will determine where we go and what we do as a nation. God's presence among his people. That's all that this meant. But it also implies something else. It implies that if the ark is going to be in Jerusalem, the city of David, where David's throne is, it implies that David's throne is actually superseded in authority. It implies that David's throne is superseded in authority by the Ark of God, by the Ark of the Covenant. Because, according to David's own words, in 1 Chronicles 28.2, David, whenever he is describing the Ark of the Covenant, he uses this phrase, he says, it is uh, it, it, you know, it's the presence of God, and it is the footstool of our God, he says. Now, that's an interesting phrase, right? It's the footstool of our God, and maybe it's a little confusing to us, okay? Uh, it's the footstool. What does that mean? What he means is that it is a, it is a royal signifier, because there is this idea that at when the, whenever the king sat on his throne, his feet would be placed on the footstool beneath the throne. And so what David is saying is that God is... Uh, seated, enthroned in the heavens, and his, but his authority reaches all the way to earth because the, co- the Ark of the Covenant is his footstool where his feet rests. It's a sign of his authority, of his rulership, of his sovereignty over Jerusalem, over Israel, and truly over the whole world. We read in the Psalms how it says that, that the Messiah, who is Jesus, who is Jesus Christ, that the Lord told him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, until I make those who rebel and who resist you submitted to you under your authority. So whatever David says, the ark is, is the footstool of our God. He is saying it is, the, it is uh, the symbol, it is the reminder that God rules over us and he rules over this world. So, the footstool is now in Jerusalem. So David's throne is superseded by God's footstool. Here's the first thing that we learn about God's presence. It implies that the Lord rules over the world. It implies that the Lord, Yahweh, rules over the world. It's a beautiful moment. 
It's a high point in Israel's history that David the king acknowledges this and that the, that the people celebrate its reality, that God rules over them. He rules over David. He rules over people, over, over the people of Israel, and he rules over the whole world. It's a beautiful moment, but it's actually kind of rare in the Bible, unfortunately. This moment where they recognize God's rulership, it's actually a little bit rare if you are familiar with Scripture. Because you know what we find really often when we read the pages of Scripture and, and especially the different narratives of the Old Testament? We find this trend. We find that more often than not, people resist God's rulership. We find that there's this trend in the Bible of though they might start in a place like this one where the people are rejoicing and acknowledging God's sovereignty and and seeking to honor and follow it, they tend to fall away. They tend to fall away and they tend to forget God's rulership. The kings over Israel are going to tend to, just like Saul before David, resist God's authority over them. There's this trend throughout Scripture of people forgetting the rulership of God. Like I said before, David's predecessor, Saul, he didn't acknowledge God's ruler, uh, rulership. He did not acknowledge God's sovereignty over the nation and over himself, which is why he had the ark. In other words, it's like putting it away in a closet where no one will see it, what he did by putting it in this nowhere town. He was forgetting, he was, he was not acknowledging that he was under the authority of God and that the nation was ultimately under the authority of God and not under him. So we can see this in Saul. We can especially see this in a, a, a great place that we can see this is earlier in Israel's history, before David and the books of Samuel, in the book of Judges. If you've ever read the book of Judges, it's a wild ride. <laughs> Judges, it's it's a lot of fun. I like, I, I like those, these, hard air, these hard places in the Bible. There's, there's a lot to be learned in them, right? It's a wild ride. There's some highs and there's some lows, and there are some things that are inspiring, and there's some things that are concerning. Here's the, I'm going to give you a little, here, here's a free tip, all right? Free of charge. The key to understanding judges is this. Anytime a phrase is repeated, that, that you should take notice of that. And there's this phrase that's repeated uh, several times throughout Judges, especially at its low points. Maybe at the, it'll tell you about a low point and then say it, or it might say it and then you read about this low point. That everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Throughout Judges, it says that again and again. It'll say, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They started to worship false gods. They started to adopt the gods of the nations around them, and then oppression would come in. God would raise up a deliverer, a, redeem, a redeemer. They'll be free from their oppression. But then the trend happens again. They slowly forget, and they drift away. And it would say, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You see, what does this tell us? What is that telling us? It's telling us this, that we either acknowledge God's rule and God's sovereignty over our lives, not just as individuals, but, but as a people, as a church, and as a society, as a nation, we will recognize God's rulership over our lives, or instead, as the cycle of sin shows us, people will begin to forget God's rule. They'll start to resist his sovereignty. They'll start to turn away from what he has told us and from his truth, from his wisdom, and instead start following their own wisdom 
people will start to, just as it says in Judges, do whatever is right in their own eyes. This trend that we read about in Scripture continues until our day today. We live in a time much like the Judges, where there are things going all around us that are confusing, that are maybe shocking, that are concerning. And beneath them all is this. Beneath them all, it's not politics. The, the, uh, the media pundits on, uh, on the internet and on television would like you to think that. They would like you to think that it's just a matter of voting in the right policies, the right candidates, and so on. Now, I'm not saying that there's no value to any of that. I think we should care, and there's some value. But if we see it at merely ex- all the problems in our society existing there, we'll never really get to the core of the issue. The core of the issue beneath politics, on the right or the left, or anything else, is this that people are doing whatever is right in their own eyes. That we have turned away from God's sovereignty, from God's rulership, from his authority. And instead now, we are choosing false gods and choosing to do whatever is right to, for us. Whatever is right to us. So this is why we see many different examples of this in our society today. In breakdowns of families, and embracing, uh, the, and embracing ideologies which teach uh, things about sexuality, which teach things about gender and identity, which are far, far removed from what God says about gender, sexuality, relationships, and so on. What we say about what is a human being, what makes a human being, what makes them valuable. And so how ought we to protect the life of human beings? The reason that we have drifted so far away from these things is because, just like in Judges, People are doing whatever is right in their own eyes instead of acknowledging God's rulership. Yet here's the truth that we learn in the scripture. Jesus still rules. Jesus still rules. We don't live in a, in a culture where we need the ark of God as a reminder of this because we have the gospel telling us of a king who victoriously rose over death. And in his resurrection, that being the the proof, the seal, the sign saying to all of the world, or all of world history, that he is the king who reigns. So how should we respond to him? We ought to respond to our God who rules by fearing him. Now here's what I mean by that. I don't mean in in the kind of fear that you have, like in, in terror. And I don't even mean that we ought to fear God in the same way that a that a, uh, a dictator or a totalitarian uh, subjugates people by ruling them with fear. I don't mean fear in that sense or fear in a sense of terror. I mean fear in a more familial sense. In the way that you might have feared a, a father or a mother or a grandfather or a grandmother whenever you were growing up, not in, not in a terror, but because you, you respected them, because you saw them as an authority over you, because you, you loved them. Maybe even, for some of you, you were blessed to admire them. You looked up to them, and because you cared about them and because you wanted their approval, you respected what they had to say, and you gave your attention to what they said. In the same way, this is what it means for us as Christians, whenever we recognize God's holiness, and we recognize that he rules, we respond in fearing him, meaning we respond in respecting that and trying to follow it. In Proverbs uh, chapter 1, verse 7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline, 
So what does it mean to be a fool? It means to not fear God, because fearing God is where we get knowledge and wisdom. In Psalm 112.1, it says, Hallelujah, happy is the person. You see, so this isn't talking about terror, right? Instead, it says, happy is the person who fears the Lord, taking great delight in his commands. Let me try to define it for you so that it's easy to understand. The fear of the Lord is an acknowledgement of his rulership that responds in respect to his holiness and attention to his commandments. That's what we mean. That the fear of the Lord is an acknowledgement of his rulership that responds in respect to his holiness and attention to his commandments. Uzzah learned this lesson with his life. You see, we read about that section there, which I said might, might be a little bit confusing at first. It says that they were carrying the ark. Uzzah went and grabbed hold of it, and God struck him dead. God had given very, very clear instructions in Leviticus and Numbers on how the ark, which once again was the symbol of his, of his presence on earth, right, his, his special presence, on how it was supposed to be handled. Number one, whenever they were moving it, if it was anywhere outside of the Holy of Holies, it had to be covered with a sheet. No one could lay their eyes upon it. On top of that, whenever they were moving it, they couldn't just go and pick it up with their hands and, and carry it that way. Instead, the ark at the bottom, at the corners, had rings that they could slide rods through and then pick it up with those rods and carry it to place it onto a cart or either several men carrying it on their shoulders. Because no one, on top of seeing it, was to touch the ark. Because once, once again, why? Because this is the symbol of God's presence. And God's holiness cannot come into contact with sinfulness. God's purity cannot come into contact with impurity. And so, in God's kindness to them, he gave them these clear instructions. He repeated them over and over and over again. This was not God having a temper tantrum. This was God doing exactly what he said he would do if someone entered his presence sinfully. Uzzah went and grabbed that ark in a brazen act of not fearing God's word, of not paying attention to his command. Now, of course, is it still shocking to read? Of course. Even David was shocked by it, and it says that David was angered by it. He started to second-guess even bringing the ark into Jerusalem because of it. And he said, hey, let it go stay at someone else's house for a little while before I bring it to my house. It's okay to admit that it's shocking and be a little confused by it, but let us not miss the lesson, especially when it comes to applying it to our own lives. Friends, we need the fear of God in our lives. We need to acknowledge his sovereignty, pay attention to his holiness, and consider what that means. Respect his holiness, and then pay attention to his commandments. The fear of God makes you pay attention to and desire to follow his commandments. Another function of the ark, in, a, in addition to showing uh, God, being God's footstool on the earth, showing his rulership, another function of the ark was that it was to hold the, the tablets of the covenant. So maybe if you remember in Exodus, it says that Moses went up on Mount Sinai and God gave him the law. 
This is where he gave him the Ten Commandments. You might be familiar with those. But he also gave him the rest of the law after that, that Israel was to follow, the civic law, the ceremonial law. God gave uh, Moses this law written on stone tablets, and then Moses came down from the mountain, and they were to put those tablets, uh, these tablets of the covenant, inside of the ark. So here's what this means. Even more than the ark just being a symbol of God's rulership, it was a symbol of God's revelation. Like I said before, God in his kindness reveals himself to his people. He doesn't just make them guess, and he doesn't act in a capricious way, like we read about the gods of other ancient societies. You know, whenever you read uh, about the, the gods of ancient Greece or, or in any other ancient society, and especially how the people thought of the gods, they can never really guess what they were thinking. They can never really guess what the gods were thinking or what the gods were going to do or how the gods were responding to something they were doing because they didn't really know much about the gods. But Yahweh is vastly different. We don't have to guess what he's thinking. We don't have to guess what are his desires because in his love, you see, this is why the Old Testament sings and delights in God's commandments because we don't have to wonder. In his love and in his kindness, he shows himself. He reveals himself to us. So the ark was also a symbol of that, a symbol of God's loving kindness in revealing himself to his people. Here's the second big thing I want us to learn. The Lord reveals himself to the world. And David intended that God's presence and his revelation, so in other words, God's presence and his word would sustain the life of the nation. That's why he brings it. He desires to bring it into Jerusalem. So that God's presence and that God's word would sustain the life of the nation. But for us, like I said before, we have something even better than an ark. We have something far better than stone tablets. We have the ultimate revelation of who God is and Jesus Christ. Once again, in the New Testament, we can see this in a few different places. One of my favorites is in, uh, is in 2 Corinthians 3, whenever Paul says that whenever we look at Jesus Christ, we are beholding the glory of God. Because, like in Colossians, Jesus is the revelation of who God is to this world. Whenever we wonder about what is God the Father like, you know, what, what is his heart what are his attributes? How does he respond to the world? And, and how does God act whenever I feel like a sinner or whenever I feel like someone who is broken or like I feel like someone who cannot see right, because I'm so confused in life? Whenever we look at how Jesus Christ interacts with people in the Gospels, we get a revelation of who God the Father is. We see who God is. Jesus is the ultimate revelation going far beyond anything that you could get on stone tablets. He is the ultimate revelation of God, and he also instructed us to feed off of God's word as our daily bread. In John 6, 35, Jesus says to the people, he said, I am the bread of life. What is to sustain us just as we eat bread, right? Or just as, or, uh, let me translate that, just as we eat po'boys, right? <laughs> to sustain our life, right? Uh, just as you eat po'boys to sustain your life. Jesus says, Jesus says, I am the bread, right? I am to sustain your life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. His capacity for sustenance to fill you and to satisfy you is without end. You will never go to him and be turned away. You who feel blind, 
who feel broken, who feel diseased in your soul, who feel like a sinner, who feel misunderstood, who feel like the, the weight of what you have done can certainly not be accepted by him. Listen to what he says. He says, no one who come to me will be hungry. He says, no one who come to me will thirst. His ability to receive you, no matter who you are, and to heal you, to fill you, to satisfy you, no matter who you are, is without end. It is infinite, which is why he is our bread. But practically speaking, how do we feed on him? Is it just mystical, something we have to find with, by, by going into you know, these different uh, mystical practices? He gives us something practical. He gives us his word. Whenever Jesus was tempted in the, in the desert to turn the stones into bread, what did he say to the devil? He said, man shall not live on bread alone. What he was doing was he was quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, uh, Moses is speaking to the people, and he says, He, being God, humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus is the bread of life. Practically speaking, how do we feed on him? Once again, we don't have to guess because he tells us, and he gives us something solid. He says, feed on my word. The Lord reveals himself to the world. How do we respond? Respond by obeying God's word. Respond by obeying God's word. If the fear of the Lord, if a respect and an awe and an admiration of who God is draws our attention to what he says, well, then once we give our attention to what he says, we ought to desire to follow it and to obey it. You see, in the last chapter, so we just read chapter 6 today, in chapter 5, we read about whenever the nation of Israel comes before David, they finally acknowledge him as their king, and then what's the first thing he does? It's kind of cool. He goes around whipping bad guys. I like it. It's really neat. He goes and he, and he, uh, the, there's these people called the Jebusites who had occupied Jerusalem. And he goes and he just, he, he kicks their butts. He wipes them out. It's awesome. Then there's these Philistines who are still in the land and they're still threatening and oppressing God's people. And so he goes to war with them and he wipes them out again and again. It's awesome. It shows us what does God's king do? He defeats his enemies. It's amazing. But then it turns from, from him whipping Jebusites and Philistines to turning to his focus on the ark of God and all that, that means, God's rulership and, and, and following God's word. And I think there's a lesson for us in that. There's a lesson in that, and that it's a good reminder that our lives cannot be sustained, like I said before, our lives cannot be sustained by anything other than God's word, but especially our lives cannot be sustained by crises. Our lives cannot be sustained by crises. Here's what I mean by that. Let me, let me show you a quote that'll, that explains it well. This is the scholar Dale Ralph Davis. He said, crises may stimulate us to action, these you know, uh, 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 cultural wars and so on, they may stimulate us to action, but they do not sustain life. The church must never look to the latest cause for her life. We cannot ignore the enemies outside the city of God, but we must not be absorbed by them. War must not efface worship. The real question is not who is against us, but 
who is among us. Friends, here's the truth. Like I said before, we should acknowledge and we should confront. We should pray about the problems that we see in our society, particularly the problems of, of, of sin and of people who are not who are, instead of following God, doing whatever is right in their own eyes. We should be concerned about those things. But we cannot be defined by the headlines. We cannot be defined by the latest scandals and crises. We are not defined by our opposition to any movement of the world. Rather, we are defined by our fidelity to God's word. It is in this that our life is sustained. It is, and it is in this, if our focus remains on where the true bread is, which is in God's word, and in eating from that bread and obeying that word, then if we do this well, then it will also inform the way that we understand how, uh, when we see sin in the world and how to oppose it. You know, really, here's the, here's the key. If you do want to be a faithful Christian dissident today, you don't need to follow the latest current event podcasts, and you don't need to get involved in the culture wars all that much. You just need to be someone who believes in God's word. And that'll make you a dissonant enough. Ultimately, it's what we're defined by, is obeying God's word. Moreover, if we are not truly paying attention to what God tells us to do, but paying attention to it not just with our minds, but also in our hearts and in our actions, then what right do we have going out into the world and confronting them for not following God's word? Judging the world for doing whatever is right in their own eyes if we are doing the same, or perhaps just hiding it better with our religiosity. What right do we have to confront Philistines for their idolatry if we aren't obeying God ourselves? What we need is reformation in our own lives before we see reformation in society. We need renewal in our hearts as individuals. We need renewal in our families. We need reformation in our churches. And then once we get these things right, we might be able to see them in the rest of the world. So we ought to fear God, and we want to see the rest of the world come to that knowledge, but it has to start with us. Are you more defined by and, and, and focused upon and thinking about the scandals and, 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 and headlines than the state of your own heart and soul? Focus more on the problems out there in the world instead of the problems of sin in your own life, the idols that need to be repented of and abandoned, and the ways that you have not been following the Lord. It's a really, really easy slope to start to slide down which is why we need to constantly remind ourselves and um, try not to slide down it. At the end of this chapter, David comes to this beautiful realization, or not really the end, I guess about halfway through. He's confused and he's angry at what they saw with Uzzah whenever Uzzah grabbed the ark. And so, like I said, David sends it off. He sends it off to Obed-Edom's house. So it goes to Obed-Edom's house, and then something happens there. It says that Obed-Edom and, and his whole household and all of his property are blessed by God. The presence of God in the ark goes to his house, and there is blessing poured out. There's flourishing poured out. Good things happen for them. 
And David hears about it a few months later. And he rejoices and he says, all right, let's go get it and bring it into the city. He, because he realized something. You see, whenever he saw Uzzah uh, struck down by, the, by God's presence at the ark, it had made him start to question uh, if they could actually be in relationship with God. And it made him start to question if God's presence was actually a good thing for himself and for the people. But then what God was trying to show David by blessing the house of Obed-Edom uh, and, and bringing flourishing, he was trying to show David, he was trying to show his people that he intended for his presence to be a blessing to them. David comes to that realization. He remembers, he learns, this is what God's heart is. This is what God's intention is for me and for us, that his presence would be a blessing to us. And so they go and they bring the ark. God's intention is to bless them, but why? Because is David any better than Uzzah? David didn't grab the ark, but the truth is, is no. Already by this point, we, uh, if you've been following in this series, we've already seen a lot of flaws in David. And we, we, there, David's made a lot of mistakes himself. He's no better than Uzzah. Is anyone else in the nation really all that much better than Uzzah? Are we all that much better? We, as much as he did, tend to not fear the Lord, not take his commands seriously, disobey him, resist him in his rulership, follow after what we think is right in our own eyes, and so on. Are we really any better? But David learns God wants to bless them. Why? How? Well, here's how. Because according to Levitical law, every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would slay a sacrifice. He would slay a lamb, and then he would take some of the blood from that lamb, and he would sprinkle it upon the Ark of the Covenant. And that blood would be sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. And here's what that meant. God's covenantal presence with his people, right? Receiving, that's what it's showing by sprinkling. He was receiving the blood of that substitute for his people. Just like Uzzah, David and all the rest of the Israelites deserve to be struck down by God rather than entering into his presence and experiencing the blessings that come along with his goodness. They deserve to be struck down, but God gave them a substitute in the sacrifices of lambs and of bulls. And whenever those substitutes were slayed and their blood was poured out, it was a sign that this is in the place of the people. And whenever they would sprinkle the blood upon the altar, it was saying God is accepting this substitute so that we might have this relationship where there is love and there is blessing, there is flourishing. But friends, we have something even better. We have something far, far, we have something infinitely better than the blood of bulls and of lambs or of anything else. We have Jesus Christ. Jesus is our atoning substitutionary sacrifice whose blood was shed in our place. We deserve to be struck down for our sin. We deserve to be exiled from God's presence because of our sin. But instead, God has provided a substitute, someone else to stand in our place, and he gives us his own son. The blood of his son is spilled for us. He receives the, the condemnation. He receives the sentencing of death that we deserve to receive for our sin, for us going after and doing whatever is right in our own eyes. 
He does this for us in our place so that whenever, so that whenever he does so, God receives his atoning blood and our sins can be forgiven. They can be washed away, not partially, but in full. Whenever Jesus Christ atones for your sin, he atones for your sin once and for all. There's nothing left for you to do. There's no religious steps. There's no cleaning up that you have to do. He has paid for your sin in full. There's no recurring days of atonement. There are no sacraments that must be achieved. He has done it. Where he says it is finished, he was speaking the truth in his resurrection from the grave. Just like the sprinkling of the blood on the altar was the symbol of God receiving it, Jesus' resurrection from the grave, overcoming death, is, is God's stamp of approval to the world that he accepts Jesus' sacrifice. And so for any of us, for any of us, regardless of your background, regardless of what you've done, regardless of, of where you come from, whether you look at your own choices, whether you look at your family choices, whether you look at your, your, you know, your name or, 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 or anything else, regardless of who we are, what we come from, what we've done, Jesus' blood can be applied to you. His death can take the place of the death that you deserve so that we can rejoice like the Apostle Paul did in Romans chapter 8 and say that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no more condemnation. The last thing we learn is that the Lord reconciles himself to the world. And so we should respond in celebration. That's how David responded. It says that he was, he was dancing and they were singing and they were playing instruments and they were having, they were having a, a parade bigger than any Mardi Gras you've ever been to. The celebration that they had because David recognized that God intended to reconcile himself to them and to bring blessing to them. So David celebrates this. And it's interesting to note this, the last thing I'm going to say. It's interesting to note, it says that he danced and he sang and he participated in that celebration wearing a linen ephod. And then it says that he made sacrifices. If you're reading closely, it's a little interesting. David was the king, but he's being presented like a priest. He's wearing an ephod. That's what the priest wore, not the king. And it says that he was making uh, sacrifices and he was offering up offerings. That's what the priest did, not the king. But David in his celebration is once again pointing us forward to Jesus Christ, who is our king, who is our revelation from God, our daily bread, our, our, our all-sustaining bread, but he is also our priest. He is our high priest who presents us before God, not with the blood of any animal, but with his own blood, who makes us acceptable before the Lord and presents us to him. If you have received such a gift to be able to follow this, this king and high priest who has given his life for you. If you have received this gospel, then how can we not celebrate? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this gospel. We thank you for this good news that for each and every one of us, despite where we come from, and who we are, and what we have done. We are not too far from your gracious reach. 
We are not outside of the bounds of where your love stops because your love is infinite. No matter how far we run, no matter, no matter how distant we think we have made ourselves, Lord, your love still surpasses infinitely still. I thank you for your love, Father, and that you displayed and you proved your love for us in that you did not leave us to die and be condemned in our own sin, but instead you took the punishment and the condemnation for sin upon yourself so that we might be welcomed into and, and swallowed up in your grace and love. We thank you and we praise you for this truth, Father. For those in here who are, who are weary Christians, who have been facing doubts and who have been beaten down by their battles with sin and who have maybe begun to doubt and question if they can still possibly be in your love, Lord, let this be a consolation to their hearts. Wrap them up in your loving kindness, in your warm embrace, and help them to realize and to remember that no matter what they do, they are surrounded by your steadfast love. Father, if there are any here today who maybe are realizing or maybe came in here knowing that they are not in right relationship with you, that they have not been fearing you and acknowledging your rule and your commands in their life, but instead have been following after their own way, doing whatever has been right in their own eyes, that they have been resisting you, that they've been avoiding you. Lord, I ask that with your gentle touch, would you bring them to your heart to let them see, Father, that you come to them in your grace, you come to them in your love, and that you desire not to condemn them, but to wash them from all of their iniquity, that you desire to heal their soul which has been broken, that you desire to cleanse them of all impurity, and to do so without the shedding of their blood, but of your own sons. So Father, touch them with your spirit. Help them to respond in faith. And Lord, we pray that for all of us who accept your gospel, that we then might, in the security of your love, endeavor to pay attention to your word and to obey it. So we might be a light to the world. And so that the name of God would not be made a shame among the world because of our hypocrisy. Father, we pray all these things and we praise you in the name of our King and High Priest, Jesus Christ. Amen.